This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security for May 22nd, 2020. Microsoft hopes to make email a little easier, plus valuable tips for using your Mac, iPhone, or iPad that can save you time and effort, including getting to know your Mac system preferences, using your iPad as a second screen, and rearranging apps on your watch. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing very well, and I'm very happy that Microsoft made a very important decision that in Microsoft Word, it will now flag two spaces at the end of a sentence as an error. Oh, no. Oh, yes. The debate is over, as The Verge says in an article we linked to. My general slogan when I'm editing texts that other people write is one space good, two spaces bad. Okay. All right. I know. You don't agree, do you? We're going to have to discuss this one. You're a bulletin board command line sans serif font guy, so you think two spaces (laughs) make sense. Okay. So I I know that there are historical reasons for two spaces after a period and that they are not really that valid anymore when it comes to things like, you know, the printing press and all that kind of stuff. We're not really worrying about, you know, uh, letters falling off, you know, when you're printing something anymore because we have virtual letters on the screen. And I know that the world has changed quite a bit since the invention of the printing press and all that kind of stuff. But I was always taught that two spaces after a period is proper. And I know, I know when you're writing an article online, you put two spaces after it and HTML automatically strips one of those spaces out anyway, because it just ignores two periods. (laughs) So, uh, you know, this is, this is one of those things that um, I'm going to have to say, agree to disagree on this because, uh, well, I was taught a way of doing long division that apparently children don't learn anymore. So I, I'm yeah. old enough to say if I was taught something, that doesn't mean it's right. I'm going to link to a couple of things here, uh, a Wikipedia article, uh, because, of course, there's a Wikipedia article on the history of sentence spacing. It's actually quite interesting. I have some old books from the early 20th century, um, late 19th century, and they generally do have double spacing or one and a half spaces that they were using different kinds of spaces at the time. But letters weren't as slim in fonts. How can I say the space around the letters was also wider at the time? So it looked, it didn't look wrong. According to this article, this used to be called French spacing. It was very old practice having been commonplace in books up through the 19th century, it says. Another thing that's interesting, if you speak French and there are some languages that do this other than French, the French put a space before a colon, a semicolon, a question mark, or an exclamation point, but not before a period or a comma. So they have an odd type of spacing. But 
I think it's simple that just two spaces are bad and one space is good. Um, and I think it's good that Microsoft Word is uh, flagging this. Now, in doing research for this, I came up uh, across a really interesting paper. And this is from an IBM journal from 1996, Techniques for Data Hiding. And it talks about ways of using spacing uh, between words, between sentences, uh, between lines and the number of spaces after words as a form of steganography. And we've talked about steganography in the past, that it's a way of hiding data in something else. And I, this is a really fascinating article. You should, if you're into encryption or codes or anything, um, look at this. It's really interesting how much you can do. If, if you think of it, if you have a very long text and you alter your line spacing between each line, let's say you add one point to one line and no points to another line, they could be ones and zeros. And if you have enough text, you could put a lot of data encoded like that. Right. Imagine that you have the, the full text for a book and uh, and you want to uh, encode a secret message into that book. You could write a very simple program that would alter that text in just such a way that you know, you would have these invisible characters, these spaces even, uh, and have that be interpretable code um, that somebody on the other end could could read if they had either the reverse of your program that could could walk it backward and, and export that to a file. Or if, you know, if they really wanted to be clandestine, they could just, uh, you know, memorize your code and then do it all by, you know, in their brain without using a <laughs> without using a program to do it uh because you could of even course, do morse code like that couldn't you no one learns morse code course. anymore but morse code would actually be easy dots and dashes one's a one of them is a one and one's a zero yeah yeah i can i could imagine how you could do this with a couple of different types of spaces um there's a non-breaking space uh, which in, in HTML is, you know, ampersand NBSP semicolon is one way to do that. I know this because I've written a lot of HTML code. But, Me too. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and a non-breaking space is different. It's, it may look very similar, but it might be indistinguishable to the naked eye, but... Uh, but it's different from a standard space. A non-breaking space will ensure that whatever word is touching it on one side and whatever word is touching it on the next side will stay on the same line where they might normally uh, break and and you know get wrapped down to the next line. Um, well, so also a non-breaking space is the only way that you can easily put multiple spaces in something. So I often use that in articles when I've got two screenshots that I want on the same line and I want to have space between them. So I'll put a half a dozen non-breaking spaces and that puts actual space that HTML doesn't strip down to a single space. Right. Oh, so that's interesting, Kirk, because you use multiple spaces <laughs> next to each other, whereas you were just saying a minute ago, you don't like the two spaces. Yes, but that's period. not in text, Josh. That's <laughs> not in text. That's between images. Now, come on, be good. Okay, all right, all right. other Microsoft news, Microsoft now blocks reply all email storms to end our inbox nightmares. Now, admit it, you've done it too. You meant to, you're in an email conversation with 50 people and you meant to reply to one person, the sender, but you hit reply all and boom. So Office 365 now has a reply all storm protection NDR. I don't know what the NDR stands for. 
and it will tell you that your reply to the email conversation wasn't sent. The conversation is too busy with too many people. I think that's good because, you know, what the worst thing about that is you get into one of these reply all things, and then you get a whole bunch of people replying to everyone saying, hey, you hit reply all. Then you can end up getting thousands of messages in like an hour. Ah, uh, yeah. So um, I'm I'm a little bit more happy about this Microsoft change. <laughs> because the, the idea behind this is, is nice. And of course, I, I've never hit reply all to some email where, where somebody has decided to send the email to or CC a whole bunch of people. Um, it, you know, you have never hit reply all, Josh? Come no, on. no, no, no. Everyone not, has done it at least once. Not me. No, I'm careful. I'm super careful about this because I'm very sensitive to it. I've been the person in an organization who was responsible for sending an email to everybody in the entire organization. And so I know you need to use BCC when you're doing stuff like this, blind carbon copy, because that prevents somebody from hitting reply all and having it go to every recipient. Um, but unfortunately, not everybody knows that, and they like to, you know, sometimes send things to everybody, and then, of course, you have these problems with reply all storms. Now, I will say that Microsoft, uh, from from what I've heard in dis- you know other discussions about this uh, new technology, is they haven't necessarily implemented it in the perfect way because. Well, okay, so one of the things that uh, that they've done here is initially this is being rolled out to detect 10 reply all emails to over 5,000 recipients within 60 minutes. So, okay. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's for big organizations. Very big organizations. Yeah. I, I mean, 5,000 recipients is, is such a big number that I think – probably very few companies are really going to be impacted by this change, at least at first, while they're keeping it at those kind of numbers. Um, So is it really going to prevent your, you know, your crazy aunt who likes to, to send, you know, mass emails to all of her relatives? Sorry if you're listening, crazy aunt of mine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I mean, this is not going to uh, necessarily affect everybody in the same way. This is really right now for very large organizations. So it's, it's a positive step in the right direction. And I would definitely like to see that number come down significantly. And hopefully at some point, you know, we either people learn to use BCC, which, you know, I'm sure there will always be people who will not know better or will refuse to use BCC for various reasons. But uh, hopefully we'll get to the point where our email software will be smart enough to know that, hey, you shouldn't be replying all to this message and uh, and maybe encourage the user to not do that. Uh, it, that would be another way to approach this uh, that might be a little bit more helpful, at, at least as long as that number is as big as 5,000 recipients. Okay, so today we're going to talk about some tips for using your Mac, iPad, and Apple Watch, and we're going to reference a few articles I've written recently. The first one is getting to know your Mac system preferences. Um, System preferences is a wonderful app on the Mac because it does organize preferences for pretty much everything 
for your Mac, for your operating system, for the Finder, for the way things are displayed, um, and even for your iCloud account. Yeah, and even in some cases, third-party apps will even have a pane that shows up in your system preferences as well. It's possible for apps to um, to integrate that way. In your screenshot in your article, you've got Backblaze Backup, which is an online uh, backup service. Not a sponsor, just just saying. But um, but but that's one example of. A, a system preference pane, it'll show up in your system preferences, but it's not developed by Apple. It's for a third party. It's not that common, actually. I've only seen a few. Another app that I've used in the past is Moom, uh, which is for organizing Windows, and that shows up as a preference pane as opposed to an actual app, because this is for apps where you don't interact with an app. This is for apps where there's settings only. So for Backblaze, I'll check the settings and I don't really need to open an app since it runs in the background. Um, but system preferences is good. And in this article, uh, I think there are some tips that uh, a lot of people might find very useful. System preferences is organized in a couple of groups, right? At the top, you've got the iCloud section. Um, the second section covers personal settings. And the next one covers settings that affect your hardware. And then finally, third party if you have third-party preference panes. But you can reorganize that into an alphabetical list. And I've always found it confusing to remember where a specific preference pane is located in the normal list. Um, and I keep mine stored alphabetically. So you can see in the screenshots in the article, instead of one, two, three, four, five, six rows, it shows up in four rows. And when you're looking for, I don't know, keyboard, you know that it's the letter K and you just look at the first letter for each preference pane to find it. My personal preference on this, when I'm looking at my system preferences, is to use the search bar. There's in the top right of this uh, of the system preferences window, um, you can actually start typing something related to what you're looking for. And, uh, and, and by the way, I have the same problem that you do. If I'm just looking at the plain old system preferences, because Apple has changed it occasionally between yeah. versions of Mac OS, they put something in a different location or sometimes they rename it or put a different icon. It can be very difficult. And if you're just staring at it, it might take you a few, several seconds to find what you're looking for. And the groups aren't even in alphabetical order, which makes it a bit hard to find things. Yeah. But if you start typing in the search bar, let's say um, I'm looking for keyboard and, it, and I don't see it immediately. Or if I'm just out of habit, the first thing I do when I go to system preferences is start typing, then I can quickly find keyboard. Um, another thing here that's really nice is that you don't have to type the name of that system preference either. You can search for things that are underneath a certain area of system preferences. For example, I can uh, start typing shortcut. And when I type short, um, now it highlights uh, several sections of system preferences. And it also uh, gives me some autocomplete options, keyboard shortcuts, expose shortcuts, spotlight, dashboard, mouse. Uh, these are things that might be related to what I've started to type. Um, and that can also help you to quickly identify and find the right place to go to. 
Because there are literally hundreds of options in system preferences. Oh, um, yeah. Some of the preference panes only have one or two options like software update. But if you look at security and privacy, there are dozens of options in there. So the typing option with the cool little animation, the way it shines the spotlights on the icon um, is really practical. Uh, another great tip is the fact that you don't need to see every preference pane. So if you choose view customize, the icons display with little check marks and you can uncheck the ones that you're never going to use. So if you don't have a CD or a DVD drive in your Mac, uncheck it. If you use a trackpad and not a mouse, uncheck mouse. If you never use more than one hard drive, uncheck startup disk. And you can make system preferences a lot more accessible by getting rid of the things you don't need. Yeah, that's an interesting tip and not something I've ever seen anybody do, but it is nice to know that that's there. And so one of the most important things, and this has rolled in just in the past couple of years, um, is your Apple ID and iCloud settings. And I think it's only with Catalina that it actually lists all of your devices that are linked to your iCloud account. So you can, um, from system, pre- you don't have to log in uh, on the web. You don't have to go to uh, the Find My app in any of your devices, but you can click on one of your devices and you'll find information about it. You'll find the serial number. You'll be able to remove credit cards if you've got them uh, set up with a device. You'll be able to remove it from your account. Um, there's a lot of things that you can do that used to be a lot more difficult to access. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to tell you how you can use your iPad as a second screen for your Mac. And we'll give you some neat Apple Watch tips that you might not know. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code PODCAST20 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST20 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay. Now, I know, Josh, you don't use your iPad very much, and you've said this many times, but just imagine that if you could use your iPad as a second display for your Mac, wouldn't that be useful? Yeah, okay. Yeah, in certain situations, I, I I can see how that might be useful. So for a couple of years, there's been third-party software that allowed this, but macOS Catalina includes a feature called Sidecar, um, and this lets you use your iPad as a second display for your Mac. I think, you let's see, you need a Mac from 2016 or later. Um, one exception is the late 2017 5K iMac. As to which iPads work, it's any iPad Pro 
the iPad 6th generation or later, the iPad mini 5th or later, the iPad Air 3rd generation or later, wouldn't it be nice if Apple came out with a better way to define iPad generations? Apple has a tendency to kind of have some interesting naming like the new iPhone or, you know, things like that. They, they like to call things the new whatever. And then ultimately it sort of gets renamed sort of behind the scenes as the iMac 2011 or iMac, you know, 2019, mid, mid 2019 or this or that. Um, and it, it just, yeah, it's, it's not great, but I mean, I guess it's better than calling it the, you know, like perform a 6400. But why why not call it the iPad Pro 2019 or um, the iPad mini 2020 or something that to me would make a lot more sense. The generations don't mean anything because a generation isn't a year. You're more likely to remember when you bought a device. That's just a minor niggle. If you bought a refrigerator recently, um, naming for refrigerators is just hellacious. I bought one in January and trying to figure out if it was the same model from one website to another was really complicated. Anyway, Sidecar is really neat. All you need to do is turn your iPad on. And if it's compatible, if Bluetooth and Wi-Fi are on, and if they're within range, so 10 meters or 30 feet, so your iPad doesn't have to be right next to your Mac, Um, you'll get the option to move a window or to show the entire display on the iPad. Now, if you think about it, this could be strange, right? Like, why do you want to do this? Well, you might want to have a window that you're just monitoring where you're not going to really do anything. I don't know, Twitter, Facebook, or maybe you have an app that gives you stock information if you're a day trader, or maybe you've got an app that's showing you a feed from a security camera, something like that. So instead of having that window on your Mac, which could either get in the way or be in the background, you can have it on an iPad all the time. To play devil's advocate a little bit, you could probably do all of those things that you mentioned with an iPad app rather than than having it show up on, on a second screen on your Mac. Okay, this is true, but you can't take the music app on the Mac and show it on your iPad. It's a different music app. The one on your Mac is using your local library. The one on the iPad is using a library in the cloud. You may not have that. You may be using Keynote on your Mac, and Keynote on iOS is a bit different, and you want to be able to see something while you're working in, say, Photoshop. Right. Yeah. In fact, one of the the use cases uh, that's kind of implied in the in the hero graphic that you have at the top of the article here is you could have, for example, um, if you're working on editing a photo, you might have several palette type windows open that allow you to to do several different kinds of adjustments. And if you want, you can have one of your screens be the full screen image that you're working on and have the other screen have some of those kind of controls and things on them. So, um, I mean, that's, that to me seems like a really great use case. Not everybody has a secondary display all, all the time, but if you have a Mac and you have a recent iPad, um, you know, this is, this could be a really great way to have a second display without having to shell out for, you know, a Thunderbolt display or something like that. And and also, a second display has to be plugged in, whereas here you have the flexibility of putting it anywhere. You lay it on your desk, you put it on a stand. Um, another use case that's really interesting is, let's say you're in a business with a client and you need to show them some work that you're doing on a project. And let's take graphic design as an example. You can hand the client your iPad. You can 
take your window and send it to the iPad. You can mirror it with Sidecar, and they can look at what you're doing at the same time as you're making changes. Instead of them looking over your shoulder, which, I mean, there's nothing more annoying than that, that you're tweaking something in Illustrator. Someone's looking over your shoulder, like, move it this way, move it that way. Um, so, or even let's say you've got a catalog of photos of, of products that you're selling and they're on your laptop and you want your client to be able to look at it. You can go through it in even the photos app. You can send that window to the iPad and you can go through the photos and they can look at them. You know, you've sold me. Okay. I, I need to get... I need to get my iPad set up as a second display for certain scenarios. Yeah, no, this, this really does make sense. I really liked the idea about not having to have a stationary secondary display always in the same spot because, you know, it can be really handy actually to be able to move that second display around. And I like that idea actually of propping up my iPad and maybe today I want to have it, you know, to the right of my, my Mac screen, but maybe tomorrow I want to have it over on the left, or maybe I'm taking my, my laptop around the house and it just in this particular room or this particular setup, it makes more sense to have the second display over here. So that really makes a lot of sense. Or you just don't want to have that second display all the time. And in this case, you just fold it up and put it away. Um, yep. The one use case that I particularly like, and we have to have the obligatory cat photo in this article. And so I like to use Pixelmator Pro on my Mac to edit photos. And so I can bounce the window over to my iPad where I can use my Apple Pencil instead of a mouse or a trackpad or a finger for touch. And that gives a lot of flexibility when you're working with graphics, when you need a lot of detail. All right, Kirk, we've just got a little bit of time left, and I want to make sure that we talk about your Apple Watch Tips article, because there's some really good stuff in here. I I talk about how to organize apps to launch them more quickly. Now, if you remember in the very first Apple Watch, how would you describe the way the apps are? They're kind of like in a beehive. Yeah, like a honeycomb pattern. Like a honeycomb pattern, right. Um, And in the last version of um, watchOS, you're able to also have them in a list. Now, they're way too small in that honeycomb pattern. And also, the default is that as you move it around, they get bigger in the center and smaller in the outside. And in the list, you not only see the icons, but you see the name. And frankly, those little tiny icons, I've never been able to recognize the four different clock icons, right? They're all orange. And one of them is alarm, one of them is world clock, one of them is timer, and one of them is stopwatch. And I can never remember which is which. Yeah, it's 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 not necessarily a great experience to to try to slide around on your watch and and pick the right app. Um, and w- yeah, and and this is something that I think everyone should do if you use a lot of apps. Um, I don't really. I I usually just stick to the things that I've got on my watch face. But if you are the kind of person who uses a lot of apps on your device, it makes a lot of sense, like you talk about in this article, to arrange them according to how you're going to use them. Yeah, there are actually more apps than you think. There's, I, I didn't count this, 25 or 30 apps by default on the Apple Watch. Now, fortunately, you can delete apps um, from the Apple Watch, the same way that you can um, remove uh, some of the stock apps in iOS, you can also delete them from the Apple Watch. So you can get rid of some of the ones. And you and I, we don't need the period tracking app, um, but women do. So we can delete it. Um, there are a number of apps that I don't use. I don't, you know, I don't use anything for running 
Um, so it, it's a good way to clear it out. Uh, one feature I really like, and I never used to do this until about last year, um, but I track my sleep now. And what this means is I have to wear the watch overnight, and I've gotten used to it. It doesn't bother me. What it means also is if I have to get up at night to use the bathroom, I can use the light on the watch to see where I'm going, and that's kind of practical. Um, there are a lot of sleep tracking apps. In fact, there's rumors that Apple's going to include their own sleep tracking feature um, in the next version of uh, Watch OS. I use an app called AutoSleep, and there's a screenshot uh, in the article. I find it really good. And the reason I do this, it's not that I have any particular sleep problems, but I work at home. Sometimes I go to sleep really late. Sometimes I need to get up early. And if I get up in the morning and I see, wow, I only slept six hours, well, I take a nap in the afternoon. Um, I have that flexibility. I know some people who have sleep apnea who like to use this because it lets them know if they've been woken up at night by the sleep apnea. This is one of the things that I hadn't really realized that an Apple Watch could be used for because it's not something that's just built in necessarily. Um, and I do like the idea of this and I'm thinking about buying that auto sleep app, but I kind of, at the same time, I kind of want to wait and see whether the next version of Watch OS comes out with the with sleep tracking functionality. If it doesn't, I think I'm going to buy auto sleep because uh, I, I definitely want to try this out as well. It's, it seems very practical. And the, is, one, yeah. the one thing I don't like about it, of course, is that now I've got to dedicate some time during the day to take off my watch and charge it. Uh, whereas normally I might take off my watch before I go to sleep and charge it then. But well, I find that with the latest um, Apple watches with the series four and series five, um, as long as you're not doing workouts or playing music on it, it doesn't need more than 20 minutes or a half an hour to charge. So you get up in the morning, you take a shower, you eat breakfast, and by then it's done. Um, it's worth pointing out the auto sleep app, in fact, most of the sleep tracking apps, you don't even have to do anything for them to work. You don't have to tell them you're going to sleep. They automatically detect it. They detect it by the fact that you're not moving and by the fact that when you go to sleep, your heart rate goes down. They'll also let you know how many times you wake up, what time you wake up. I, I find it really nifty. A lot of people are going to say, well, I don't need to track all everything I do. But, you know, it's an interesting thing to, to have an idea. Sleep is important for our health. Very. And you might not realize that you wake up a lot at night. And if you do work at home, hint, hint, you might want to take a nap in the afternoon. Ambient noise level. So this is another uh, watchOS 6 feature. There's microphones in the Apple Watch, and you may know that if you say, hey, Siri, to your Apple Watch, um, it can talk to you. And you can use the microphones together with the noise app to check the noise level. When would you want to use this? Maybe you're at a concert and you want to know if it's really hit 120 decibels, which is the noise level of a 747 on a runway. Maybe you've been out mowing the lawn and, you know, it's not so much the sound level itself, but it's the amount of time that you're exposed to the sound. So if you've been exposed too long, maybe take a break from mowing the lawn and um, go back later and do more. Yeah, another, I think, practical and, and common place where you might use something like this is perhaps you work in a very noisy environment. Maybe you work on uh, near or at a construction site, for example, and it might be very important for you to know um, what your exposure is to, to certain decibel levels. And so um, this could be very practical, especially for, for certain cases like that, depending on the kind of job you have or environment where you, where you typically find yourself. Um, so it can be very useful for, for people. 
Okay, very quickly, since we're almost out of time, we're going to go through the rest. Um, I've mentioned this several times that you can use your Apple Watch to unlock your Mac. You can also use it to authenticate um, with certain apps. So, for instance, we were talking about system preferences. Uh, when you click the little padlock on some of the system preference panes, you can double press the side button on your Apple Watch to authenticate. Um, control music playback on your iPhone. This is particularly great if you're out walking or running, listening to music on your iPhone. This also, it's not just about music too. It works perfectly with the Apple podcast app, for example. Well, it works with any podcast app. I use Overcast on my iPhone and I use this. Um, so you can control the volume, pause, fast forward, go back, etc. Interestingly, I've even found that this works for pausing YouTube videos that you're watching on your iPhone. Um, pretty much any audio that's playing, but not audio in an app like a game. I don't think that works. Right, right. So if you're in a meeting and your app starts making noise like you haven't silenced it, which you should, um, a good way to do this is to just cover your watch, put the palm of your hand over the watch, and that'll silence it and it will dim it. Now, there's a, a new feature. I think it was in watchOS 5. They call theater mode. And if you put this on... Uh, the screen will light up for a few seconds when you tap it, but then it'll go dark. And this is good for the theater, so you don't annoy people if it's a dark part of a movie or if you're in an actual theater. If it lights up, all you have to do is put your palm over and it goes away. Now, I said earlier, if you wear your watch uh, to sleep at night to track your sleep, you can put it into theater mode so it doesn't light up when you move. And that's a pretty useful thing to remember. So you don't wake up anyone else who's in the same bed with you because of the light. You can also save a little bit of battery too. Um, it may not use a lot on the latest Apple Watch to have the screen on all the time, but if you, uh, it, you certainly don't need to be looking at your watch when you're sleeping. So it absolutely makes sense to use theater mode in that scenario. Okay, so one other cool feature I really like, and I'm sure you've left your iPhone sometimes in a different room, under some papers, in a couch. Well, there's a little button on the Apple Watch that when you tap it, it makes your iPhone make that little noise. And you tap it again, and it helps you find your iPhone if you've lost it. It's kind of fun because it sounds like a little sonar ping, you know. So you can you can uh, pretend that you're using sonar to, to find your, your iPhone. If you're not aware that this is there, you will thank Kirk for writing this in his article because <laughs> this can be such a handy feature. If you're the kind of person who tends to put down your phone and then not realize where you put it, this is super handy. Okay, that's enough for this week. Um, we'll be back with some more useful information next week. And until then, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>